State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this second season episode, we speak with Ariel Zorolnik, Fund Director at Membership Puzzle Project about the state of membership in news. The Membership Puzzle Project answers the most important question for the future of high-quality public service journalism. How do we build a sustainable news organization that restores trust in journalism and moves readers to become paying members of an online community? Let's begin. Hi, Aria. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. I know you've been traveling quite a bit, um, and there's uh, there's a lot that's been happening with membership puzzle and and what you guys are doing. But I guess just before we delve into that and our main topic of today about membership, the membership ecosystem, I'd love to just get share uh, your background and, and the membership puzzle's background with, with our audience. Sure. So I'll start with with MPP Membership Puzzle Project. We were launched in May 2017 with the goal of how to studying how to optimize news organizations for trust. Um, we were co-founded by Jay Rosen, a media critic and professor here at NYU and, um, and deaf correspondent, sort of reader-supported um, journalism platform based in the Netherlands. And they, were, they launched Membership Puzzle Project together. Since MPP's inception, we've been particularly fascinated with membership as, as not just a revenue model, but as an editorial orientation that sees readers as much more than an ATM. So yes, we do quite a bit of work around the launch and um, development of revenue generating membership programs, but we also do a lot of work to help organizations uh, improve their efforts at audience engagement. And first and foremost, sort of improve the trust between them and their audience members, which we see as sort of the cornerstone of being able to build a revenue generating membership program. Um, when we first launched in 2017, we began primarily as a research project and began by researching those news organizations that um, were early adopters of membership models in news. And we studied not just the organizations and how they worked and, and sort of what are the types of staff positions they had to support that work, but also who are the members of those organizations and what motivated them to become members. And that's kind of become the cornerstone of our work, that understanding of the motivations. Um, and we've been able to take that information and help many other news organizations around the world launch membership programs based off of some of the sort of like early success and, and early understandings we have from that initial cohort. After that initial research, we launched several communities of practice to understand the successes and challenges of early adopters and, and also help to develop a bit of a community amongst them so they could increase their chances of succeeding by working together and sharing what they were trying. And then we progressed to sharing the findings from those communities of practice to the rest of the field. And so if you look at MPP's body of research on our site, that's where most of that research comes from, is the research done within these early communities of practice. And then in um, October 2018, Membership Puzzle Project launched what we call the Membership and News Fund. And this is what I joined the team to run. Um, The Membership and News Fund was created to greenlight promising experiments with with membership and news. We, as we looked across the ecosystem in 2018, we realized that there was, we had generated so much conversation and consideration about membership as a revenue model and not just us, but others who were succeeding in the space were generating conversation, but we didn't feel like we were seeing enough tries, particularly not in unconventional contexts or unconventional approaches. And so we, we created the fund 
essentially to green light further experimentation with membership to interrogate more questions about how membership and news could work and in what context it could work in and also in what context it might not work. So um, some of the experiments are, um, you know, higher risk than others. And we are supporting them just as much to find out what might not work as much as um, what will work. I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, um, it's it's very interesting the progression that you guys have MPP has taken to get to, to where it is. Um, I guess uh, you know in the past I've, we've we've seen the likes of Matter and and there's other venture based funds that have tried to help media, media organizations with their monetization and not particularly with uh, membership models, but with monetization. Um, how have you seen that evolve uh, evolution and the current scene in because I've seen increasingly more like there's splice in Asia Pacific, which has, and, and you mm-hmm. know, Google News, which has um, a news fund initiatives that are being created, and even Facebook to some extent as well with their initial product launches and, and sponsoring um, news organizations. How have you seen that evolution happen um, to shift towards journalists and more professionals within the industry creating those type of um, initiatives as opposed to VCs, and and why do you think that's the, that's the case? Well, MPP is a little different from the others that you mentioned because all of the others that you mentioned are um, are sort of accelerators, yeah. and we're very intentionally not an accelerator. We don't think that there's one approach, and that we should just help organizations speed along that that one approach. Mm-hmm. But we are um, at our core a research project. And we created the fund to support experimentation. So I think MPP is a bit different in the sense that we're not necessarily looking for something that can appear on a piece of paper cut and dry as a success story, but something that has interrogated a question that the industry can learn from. Um, so every project that we're supporting in the fund is exploring a new way that membership and news can work um, that we think has broad applicability for the field. So we have only one or two more traditional sort of membership tries within the fund, but we do also have explorations of what it might look like to have companies underwrite memberships for their audience members. And what is the conversion rate when that, that sort of sponsorship ends? How many of those underwritten members end up converting to paid members of their own volition? Um, we have an exploration of what it might look like for news organizations to enter into community memberships in which when you join the news organization, you're also joining the local museum, the local symphony. Um, and a local sort of civic institution or something like that. And so I can't necessarily speak to why accelerators are booming because we've sort of very intentionally positioned ourselves not as an accelerator, but I think the proliferation of them speaks quite a bit to the challenges facing the industry right now. Um, Everybody is trying to help these organizations survive and any support that's available in the ecosystem is is certainly appreciated. Um, you also mentioned the Google DNI grants in there, and I think, or maybe you were speaking about their sort of subscription and membership labs. But you know, I think the DNI grants have a somewhat um, similar approach to us at MPP in the sense that they're supporting a plurality of approaches, a plurality of tools and needs to sort of buoy up the ecosystem as a whole. And I think that's where I would differentiate MPP as the sort of plurality of approaches that we're supporting with the goal of walking away from this time at MPP, understanding quite holistically context in which membership will work and context in which membership won't work or, or when membership was not staffed or resourced properly. And that's why the reason why one of these projects didn't work. So it's, it's overall a goal to just learn as much as we can about this, this relatively nascent idea still before we sunset on May 1st. How have you seen the journey and the, since you started, how have you seen the journey with the 
shift in the um, introduction of the the fund and um, with every with the new publishers that have been uh, news organizations that have been coming on board how have you seen the changes take place and what have you been your lessons so far um why well, I, I joined mpp from a local media startup in miami called the new tropic they're the flagship publication of a, a local media and technology platform called whereby us that that tries to help what they call curious locals connect to their cities. So um, I was really fascinated with the idea of membership as a revenue model because I already saw the incredible benefits, um, both in relationships, but also revenue generating and and sort of in-kind contributions of working closely with your community members. And I wanted to understand more about that space. And so that that is what motivated me to join MPP is I thought we're better to ask the question of, is there a revenue model out there that can actually incentivize organizations to serve their community members as best they can? Um, most other sort of revenue options out there at best sort of exist parallel to that desire to serve community members intensely in that way. And sometimes can be a bit at odds, um, at odds with that and have a lot of friction within the organization. And I was um, fascinated with membership as a potential answer to that friction that I saw in, in other revenue models that were out there. I think since joining and particularly what's been fascinating to us with the fund, um, the fund was, we were accepting applications on a rolling basis. So we opened the fund towards the end of October, 2018 and did not close it for good until it was the end of June, 2019. And we had applications coming in in sort of waves throughout that time. And what was really interesting for us to be able to see is how much the sophistication of the applications, the sophistication, the understanding of what membership and news could be, how drastically it climbed in such a short period of time. The applications that we received early on, many of them showed that we were just beginning to sort of get the word out about what membership could look like in a news organization. Um, And by the end, we were receiving often some incredibly sophisticated applications that were already showing early tries of membership within that organization and an understanding of what was holding them back from growing their program or growing their footprint um, and asking very specifically for funding that could help them address that need. We also have seen a very clear growth and understanding of the difference between subscription and membership. They are both audience revenue programs, but uh, with subscription as we at MPP see it, you are, um, it's a transactional relationship. You give money to the publisher and the publisher gives you access to their journalism in turn. And that's sort of where the relationship ends Whereas with membership, we see audience members as giving not just their money, but also their time, their expertise, their connections, their ideas to, to a cause that they believe in. It's, it's much more of a social contract. And we have seen the understanding of that difference climb quite a bit over time. We've seen organizations in their own words sort of reflect that back to us um, as they speak about their work. Um, and I think we've also seen a real understanding of the fact that you can't ask audience members to contribute to your organization financially until you've started to, to, to earn their trust. Um, people understand, I think, the role that the trust gap plays in holding back audience revenue growth. On the flip side, because of some, I think, early financial successes with membership programs, um, particularly from organizations like Deck Correspondent, The Correspondent, and The Guardian, we have seen some people try to cut corners and try to sort of have a one-size-fits-all membership approach and just sort of treat it as another version of the conversion funnel. And we at MPP feel that membership is, is a very different, it's a very different relationship than one that you see encapsulated in the sort of casual visitor to your site, then loyal visitor to your site, then subscriber to your free newsletter, and then paying member. 
um, we see membership there as there being so many more entry points that can't be captured in that sort of funnel that we see a lot of um, people trying to apply to membership because they've seen the early revenue success and sort of want to accelerate that as quickly as they can. That's really, that's really interesting that you point out, and all of that makes sense because, um, yeah, I think as, as it becomes more mature, then there's, there's people will be able to better differentiate that. But um, with uh, have you just before we go into the tactical stuff, I'd love to address some of those points in more of the tactical uh, stuff because you guys have released a, a guide on that in, in depth, which I'd love to go into more in detail. But um, have you seen any particular countries that have been applying more or less of? And does that reflect how you see the landscape evolving as well in terms of the membership offerings and the and, and where those um, products and offerings are coming from? The question is, where have we seen the most experimentation with membership geographically? Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I think what's been really exciting about working on a global project is that we have seen this taking off around the world. Yes, we receive the most number of applications from the United States, but we received more than 230 applications and, and less than 100 of them came from the United States. The second largest number of applications we received came from Latin America. And the more I got to know the Latin American media ecosystem, the less surprising that was to me. Latin America has been um, far more experimental in the reader revenue space than the United States. They have several examples of organizations that have been primarily reader revenue supported for many years. Pagina Dose in Argentina, one of our grantees, um, launched a membership program, I think more than two years ago at this point. And they're a legacy organization that's been around since 1987, I believe. And so Latin America has had a lot of success with reader revenue already. And so I think the sort of shift to membership has happened more easily there because there was already sort of a broad understanding in the industry that reader revenue was a thing that was going to be a part of the revenue mix for most news organizations. Latin America has also shown a lot of early success with crowdfunding as a way to sort of test out capacity and propensity to pay for news. Many of the projects we're supporting in Latin America have begun as crowdfunding supported projects and then eventually realized that they needed membership in order to sort of stabilize the operations of the organization. Um, So the crowdfunding was successful, but hard to rely on and made it hard to do long-term planning. And so they pursued membership because they already had a proof of concept that their work was valuable enough to community members for them to be willing to pay for it. And so membership was sort of a more predictable, reliable way of um, bringing in that same revenue source. Um, But again, one of the most successful examples that we've seen of membership um, one that we keep coming back to again and again, in, uh, particularly as proof that membership can exist in contexts that are not wealthy American and Western European countries, is the Daily Maverick in South Africa. Um, so their membership program is about a year and a half old at this point. And last I checked, um, they were closing in on 10,000 members. Um, and their membership, um, the revenue that they bring in from membership has been contributing to sort of in the mid-20s percent of their operating budget. It's fluctuated as hiring has fluctuated, as they've they've, um, hired more staff. But generally, it's been contributing between 20 and 25% of their operating budget since it was about six months old. Um, And we bring that example up again and again because it's not just proof that membership can work in a South African context, but proof that membership can work. I mean, it's really one of the leading global examples of membership in news, not just an example on the African continent. And they 
have these incredibly strong relationships with their readers. Um, readers know what they're joining. They have a strong sense of mission. And the Daily Maverick has shown that if you serve readers and you're transparent in your approach and your mission, you can build something really viable, even in a, in a more challenging context like South Africa. They have a whole number of technological challenges, and yet the program continues to grow because the fit is there. The market fit is there. The product fit is there. Do you think that the fact that um, LAMTAM and, and South Africa and Africa in general, the fact that um, they're more heavily reliant on mobile, because in comparison to Australia and, and USA, um, that, that adoption in, in terms of mobile commerce and in China, that that's, there's been more adoption there. Do you think that the fact that those countries have that adoption there has helped with that transition to memberships more seamlessly, as opposed to countries like USA and Australia? Um, I don't know that mobile penetration, I, I don't know enough of about that to make a hypothesis as to how much mobile penetration has played into membership success in those contexts. I'm sorry, I, I can't speak to that. No, that's okay. With, with that, I guess I'd love to uh, shift our conversation to more of the practical hands-on um, stuff, particularly with a lot of the information that's on MPP at the moment. Um, I believe one of those areas that you, you guys mentioned in that handbook is around the North Star metric and having one single focus. Is that something that is, um, why, why do you, why, obviously, why is that important, having one single focus? And the second thing is, why do many organizations try to focus on too many things at once, in your opinion? Um, I think we wouldn't say there needs to be one single focus, but that organizations are often saying, how should I determine health of my membership program? How do I know if I'm succeeding? Yep. And um, we wanted to give them <laughs> like a North Star for that. Um, there are so many other member, sort of sub-measurements beyond loyalty, um, beyond retention. But personally, I think it's important to do this because many of the organizations that are experimenting with membership are much smaller organizations. A person's portfolio often includes four things that at a larger organization before five different jobs. And so it is really important to simplify this process and make it feasible on a small team. And measuring against one or two metrics is a lot easier than tracking five or six different me metrics across many different platforms. I think we also looked at loyalty and retention because as I think I've said a couple of times, this my membership is, is much more of a relationship than a transaction. And membership and retention tie much more closely to a model that is based on relationships. People are leaving a cause when they leave membership. If they choose not to re if they choose not to re-up their membership, they're sort of abandoning something that at some point they believed in. Versus with subscription, there could be any number of reasons that somebody is churning out of their support for an organization. And so I think there's a much tighter um, relationship between loyalty and relationship-driven models, um, revenue models like membership. And you mentioned earlier that there's, it's not as simple as, um, you know, new visitor, uh, subscriber, loyal visitor, that there's many entry points and many types of users, I guess. Can we go through a bit more detail about that? And, and how do you think, where, the, where are those entry points and, and, and how, what, do, what does a new news organization that wants to get into memberships has to factor in when they want to plan to create a, a membership or membership offering? 
Sure. Um, well, the research that you brought up about the North Star metrics for news, um, this, this question that you ask is funny because literally the intro to that, that membership, to that research piece is an interview with um, someone named Hannah Young, who is the director of audience at the Reveal Center for Investigative Reporting. Right. And when she was being interviewed, she basically said like the traditional marketing funnel doesn't work for us. We have 10 different funnels, depending on what particular type of work we're talking about at any point in time. So for example, with Reveal, they have podcasts, they have SMS conversations, they have events, they have your more traditional investigative stories, they have newsletters, um, they have um, reporter-driven newsletters versus institutional newsletters coming from Reveal. And so all of these different entry points that a reader could have with Reveal have to be tracked slightly differently. Um, so there is no one funnel because you have people coming in to Reveal from like 10 different places. And you have varying levels, the ability to measure their, to measure those interactions with an event. It becomes a question of how much friction do you want to introduce into the event attendance process? Um, do you want to make everybody queue up before they go into an event and sign in and share their email address and make sure that it's the same email address that's in your newsletter system and also in their sort of membership section on your site? I mean, that, that's um, a huge friction point for people who are coming to an event in order to enjoy themselves. So that frustrates the, um, the ability to track correlations between newsletters, subscription, and events, for example. And I, I bring that example up because I, I think it's just important to understand the complexity if you're doing this sort of full-bodied, multi-entry point relationship with your readers, it can be really difficult to drill that relationship down to a single number in the way that you can when you're measuring something more simple like subscriptions. There's also the fact that um, because you're valuing the audience relationships and the engagement you have with your audience members, you know that there anybody who's run a news organization can probably name off the top of their head 15 to 20 sort of super users, people who respond to the newsletter at least once a week, people who comment, leave thoughtful, thought-provoking comments on just about every story that's shared to Facebook, um, or maybe comment on every article on your site. And there often isn't a clear way to link that to things like their newsletter subscription status, or even whether they're a paying member of the organization because of trouble integrating social media platforms to, um, to other systems like MailChimp or Salesforce or things like that. And so the reason that we're still challenged in membership and, and truly, I think, understanding the breadth of support that readers provide for our organizations is because it's a very manual process. Um, I know from running a local media organization before I joined MPP that I sort of had this map in my head of all the ways that community members contributed to the new tropic. And some of those were financial. We had a membership program. But also sometimes people collected email addresses for us at their events um, and had a waiver there that allowed us to bring those people onto our newsletter list. Sometimes people provided giveaways um, for us to run through our newsletter in order to grow our list. Um, sometimes people invited me to come and speak at their event in order to bring awareness to our organization. And all of these are ways for someone to show their support, I believe, as a member of the organization. And some of these were worth much more than a $80 a year membership. The in-kind value of these things was immense. And yet we had no sort of centralized way of tracking this because how on earth could you track all of those different ways of supporting an organization in, in one central place. Yeah, I'm seeing as well, I've um, in the past few months interviewed a, a startup that's also f focusing on trying to address this, creating a CRM to address that issue that you've, you've mentioned, which is interesting. Um, would, you, would you say, uh, though, that there might be a, 
not a danger for a lack of term a danger that people might then because it's still a bit complex and manual that maybe news organizations would be shift to being more platform centric or just being too narrow in 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 trying to create those funnels or to to actually to help generate revenue for the membership or i don't think there's a risk of becoming do you mean social media platform centric so yeah social media or even like for example like you mentioned it might be if the membership is a newsletter then just focusing on just the newsletter platform or mailchimp and not regarding the, the site as not spending too much time on the site as they used to for example or, or on other initiatives that they had I don't actually see that as a problem if somebody is supporting an organization but only encountering it through the newsletter um, or through a like WhatsApp group or something like that. Um, people support a membership, as I as I think I said. It's it's you're monetizing the relationship around the news rather than the news itself, mm-hmm. which lessens the need to bring people to your website. You they they feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves and. From the perspective of a news organization, it's it's probably it's really not as important what platform they're encountering you on as long as they are developing a habit with you and they decide that they value that habit enough that they want to support your organization financially or, or in other sort of in-kind ways. Yes, I think that there's a real risk of doubling down on one particular pathway if it's proven to be successful. But as long as the organization understands why that pathway is working, and that's often more fundamental to audience behavior than it is to the platform itself. Memberships are not succeeding because everybody wants their inbox. Sorry, newsletters are not succeeding because people want an overflowing inbox. Newsletters succeeding because people are tired of the endless scroll and having to go and refresh a homepage all the time and scroll through Twitter endlessly and scroll through Facebook endlessly. And so newsletters allow for people to relax a little bit and know that as long as they read that one thing, they will be reasonably caught up and well-informed about the topic at hand. It answers to the sort of weariness that people have of the endless news cycle. That's why member, that's why newsletters have taken off. Um, so I think understanding the underpinning behaviors that have made newsletters take off if people keep that front and center, when email eventually, I shouldn't say eventually because email has stuck around for far longer probably than any of us expected as a primary communication means. But if, sure. if email ever wanes as, as the sort of primary way that people seek to answer to that need, as long as we make sure to understand the underlying motivations of audience members, I think we can make that shift to whatever platform is ascendant at that point in time fairly easily. It's, it's about understanding why, for example, right now, newsletters are in vogue versus just like gaming the newsletter system as best you can. Yeah. What's the what's skill set needed so that people have that comprehension and ability to look at more audience behavior as opposed to trying to game the platform, like you mentioned? Sure. I mean, um, at MPP, one of the things that we've done quite a bit that I have really enjoyed is we've looked beyond news to understand Um, how membership can succeed. So although membership in news, with the exception of public radio, is a relatively new development, membership has been sort of the mode of operating for many um, many other industries for a long time. And so we've done quite a bit of research into how membership has succeeded in those spaces. And and one of the things that we saw again and again is a sort of fascination with what the members value and why they choose to contribute. These organizations are constantly speaking 
constantly sort of in communication with their members, both formally through surveys um, and interviews and, and informally just through encountering them out in the world and being sort of in that constant, in that constant open communication. Um, and then being able to take what they hear from them and translate that into testable testable ideas about how to deepen that relationship is really key. It's sort of a fascination with readers. Um, one of the things that I, I say quite often is um, we need to figure out how as journalists to be as fascinated with our readers as we are with the policies and politicians that we cover sort of exhaustively and obsess over day in and day out and try to game out. How can we carry over just a little bit of that obsession with the people that we cover to the people that we say that we're there to serve? And so at MPP, one of the things that we really encourage organizations to do, and as you saw in that sort of beta of the launch handbook that you referenced before, we have an entire section on how to do audience research. And that is really important. We really encourage organizations to know who are their audience members, why are they your audience members, what kind of support are they interested in providing, where do they want to encounter you, what kind of relationship do they want to have with you. It is so important to be in constant communication with your readers to understand who they are and how their, their opinions and habits might be changing. And that, that is, I think, what will allow an organization to understand the difference between email newsletters work. And email newsletters work because our readers are tired of having to refresh a homepage all the time and just need to be reassured if they read this one thing every morning at 7 a.m. that they will be reasonably well-informed and can relax and go about their day. In terms of communicating and in, in, in creating a relationship with the, the newsreader, what... Um, channel have you seen more consistently um, working on or, or which approach have you seen more consistently working across the board? Because, uh, you know, in speaking with other people within the past year, I've seen, for example, local and more local news sites look using text messages or there's, there's people that use groups in order to maintain their relationship and transparency with, with, their, with their readers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we've seen events um, be a really key part of that. Um, The Reuters Institute for Journalism at Oxford actually did a really helpful report looking into um, the Daily Maverick, Rappler, and um, the Quint in India. And one of the things that they studied is the places where um, those organizations convened their audience members. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Daily Maverick was sort of an outlier in that group in the sense that it interacted with its audience members almost exclusively through its newsletter and through events. And events have very quickly become, as, as the membership program has developed, events have taken off at the Daily Maverick. I think I was speaking to them a couple weeks ago, and they have something like 30 events planned for 2020, and they're doing them in multiple cities. So originally, they were focused solely on Cape Town, and Johan- Cape Town where they're headquartered in Johannesburg, of course, where so much of their sort of political reporting happens. But now they're doing events in other cities as well, like Durban. And that has been a key component of their membership strategy. Um, Decathlon Vista in Romania, another one of our grantees, um, has for a few years now been doing these live um, storytelling shows called Door Live. And they bring together hundreds of people in the National Theater and in um, large venues in other cities outside of Bucharest um, for these sort of part journalism, part theater sort of gatherings that that bring people into the news in a totally new way or bring people into relationship with the news organization in a totally new way. I also think that we are beginning to see signs that comments are kind of coming back as a place that people are beginning to play around with. 
I think that this has a lot to do with people being very reluctant to continue to host key relationships on Facebook. When audience members were only engaging for the purpose of engagement, it was less concerning for those relationships to live on a platform like Facebook. But now that people are turning to their audience members for financial support, they need to be able to rely on reaching those members directly rather than through um, sort of hedging, uh, trying to make sure the algorithm makes sure that their work is encountered by their members. And so comments are one way that I see some organizations really trying to experiment with having conversations with their readers on platform. And that's not because they're trying to drive people to their website specifically, like because they want them to read their stories in full, but it's more that they want the readers to interact in a place that is more integrated with the rest of their system. You know, that you can you can integrate the data from your content management system and from MailChimp um, and from Salesforce more easily than you can um, information from a Facebook group and those sources. And um, we've seen some interesting experimentation with that, particularly people making comments available to members only to sort of maintain those places as a place for civil discussion. So the content, the journalism itself remains free to everybody, but only the, op- the opportunity to comment is reserved for members. In a few examples, we see Pajena Dose in Argentina experimenting with that quite a bit, and in particular, sort of valuing comments at the same um, level as the journalism that their reporters are producing and allowing those comments to be sort of discrete story units that can then become the basis of their own conversation and their own sort of news gathering efforts. No, I have seen as well, particularly events, even across multiple interest industries, um, being a key focus. Um, although it's it's hard to, do you think that that um, in speaking with uh, the Maverick and um, other organizations that it's easy to replicate across multiple cities or because it is very capital intensive and time intensive as well. Do you think that um, you need to get to a certain level in order to consider events as a, a way to connect with your audience members and as a revenue stream? Yeah, but I think that that is each organization has to determine that threshold for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking to one of our new grantees the other day, and they they had run a membership campaign the previous summer, and it had brought in only three hundred members, and so they canceled the program. And I and I asked them why didn't you just sort of let those three hundred members sort of stay in the system and then make another try later? And they said because the amount of effort that it would take to support those three hundred members cost more than the revenue that those 300 members were bringing in. So they were making a very clear calculation. We didn't want to damage our relationship with those members by um, giving them a subpar experience. We would rather hit the reset button, recalibrate, and then make a concerted effort at doing this in a bigger way so that we will bring in enough revenue to truly support those members the way that they want to be supported. And we've heard this at MPP, particularly when we look at spaces beyond news. You ask about the sort of size of the organization. I want to flip that question a little bit and say, why do you need to grow so fast? With member-driven organizations, member-driven movements outside news, one of the things we've seen is many organizations strategically limiting their growth to ensure that they don't dilute the value of the membership program. They are very intentionally growing only as big as they can support with the staff that they have at hand. One of the things that we at MPP say a lot when we're starting to work with an organization is, okay, you're launching membership. What are you going to stop doing? That is a question that I think probably people are sick of me of hearing from me, but it's a really important one to ask is there's got to be something within your workflow that you can stop doing for a few months to clear the time and space to do this right. 
membership is, I think, ultimately a much more valuable, stickier relationship with your readers, but it takes a lot more work up front and it needs to be staffed differently than most news organizations are set up to staff. Um, and so it often requires a bit of a reassessment of, of how the resources are being distributed, the roles that people play, et cetera. And you might have to put one or two other things on hold in order to make membership work within your organization when you launch it, um, or if you see it sort of faltering and, and you're trying to figure out why. So yes, events um, are more sort of time intensive and capital intensive, but there's also a good chance that you'll retain those members for longer. So if you're making a, if you're thinking about the long-term impact, you these members that encounter you in person might be less likely to churn. So yes, it's a little bit more investment up front, but you also maybe don't have to go and put in all the work to get a new member a year from now because you lost this one because you've never met them in person before, had a one-to-one relationship with them. I think those points are all um, very important. And thank you for flipping the question as well. I think it was really important to hear um, even that point of what you guys need to stop to do in order to make this happen work. So uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Is there any final advice leading into 2020 or predictions that from a membership point of view, you'd like to offer um, to news organizations and our audience? Um, Predictions. This is funny because we've been thinking about Neiman Lab predictions over here over the last couple of days. I do think back to actually you asked me about what platforms you might see other than newsletters. I'm really hoping to see some more in- some interesting experimentation around commenting or maybe something that I'm not even thinking about. I think it's really important for us to be thinking about um, what are the kinds of online communities that we can create with our members. Because as you said, um, in-person events are capital and time intensive. They are very powerful, but it's not feasible to meet every member um, in person. And so I think there's a lot more that we can do in the online community building space. And I'm really excited to see what kind of things we see newsrooms try in the next year. So I say commenting, but there's a good chance that it will merge on some platform that I don't even know about right now. And I also think one thing that I'm excited to watch more of is the sort of development of membership programs within subscription-based organizations. We've seen a few conversations and and tries around this already um, in the United States and Europe. Essentially, subscription-based organizations who are realizing that they want to have a deeper relationship with those people who have already shown their sort of financial support for the organization by becoming a subscriber. And so we see people developing these sort of memberful opportunities to engage with their subscribers. And I find this really encouraging because there is nothing but benefits to come from working in concert with your audience members and getting to know them better. Whether you have a membership revenue model or you have a subscription-based revenue model or another revenue model entirely. Um, So I've been excited to see a couple of organizations beginning to experiment with that, but particularly legacy organizations for whom I know it is quite hard to make these kinds of organizational changes. And I will be interested to see if we um, see enough early success amongst those organizations that are trying it now to have it gain more traction amongst other legacy um, legacy newsrooms across the U.S. Awesome. I wish you good, good luck on your journey as well. And with that, um, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.